Free Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is co-host Jessica Hines of Meditative Writing. Welcome, Jessica. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and our guest, our featured guest today is Erica Schreiner, who is an experimental filmmaker, performance artist, and writer based in New York City. She's completed more than 70 performance arts um, video art pieces, including a VHS um, video camera, including Satori, using a VHS video camera, including Satori, a feature film. Schreiner has published two books of short stories, Hellos and Goodbyes, 2009, and Arrows, illustrated by Nysa Frank. 2015, a poetry book, The Plastic Sea. 2017, The Greatest History of Life. 2019 was just published this year by Mad Gleam Press. Erica hosts um, Living Volume, an open mic in the Living uh, Gallery outpost in the East Village every third Wednesday of the month. She founded uh, Meretta Magazine, a a printed periodical that explores and documents experimental video and performance arts. And she's currently working on her second feature film. Welcome, Erica. Hi. Okay, cool, cool. I'm, I'm worried you're not doing enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why don't we start a little bit about your um, experimental filmmaking and, and how you got into and how and what and maybe you can uh, give the audience a little bit of a, a, a bird's eye view of like what and we'll get a little more deeper into later okay. about what's about. Yeah. Um. Well, I guess I started as a painter, a kid painter, um, and then fast forward to the time. I'm in college and studying graphic design and getting ready to leave. And um, someone gave me a VHS camera and I, I was, I was interested in cinema, but I think when I started turning the VHS camera on myself um, in my apartment in Portland, Oregon, a lot of that was about trying to come to some truth about who I was. Um, Because back then that would have been in like 2002 or 2005, um, the internet just wasn't what it was today and people didn't have cell phones where they were constantly taking pictures of themselves. So the way that I was able to see my own image and try to understand who I was through it was by videoing myself on VHS. Mm, Interesting, interesting. And it's like the process of discovery through poetry and through writing as well kind of complemented each other, do you find? Or did you you find, how did you find your like, did you look at the VHS videos as being like a, a painting or how did you, how'd your art interact or in what way? Um, now I view it that way. Initially I was, I was just trying to come to some conclusion. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah, I would, I would, I had never seen my eyes move before. I remember that was like the most stunning thing, like getting video back of myself and just being 21, 22 and not really knowing who I was yet and videoing videoing myself doing things like getting ready to go out dancing and putting on makeup and watching this footage and and trying to understand something. You know? yeah, and you kept with uh, VHS, you know, even though the revolution, I guess the digital revolution <laughs> has, has washed over us. But uh, what yes. about VHS is so compelling or what is I think it's really beautiful um, in this hyper real high definition time that we live in. Um, it's, I don't know. It's like the, the footage is reminiscent of what I grew up with, 
you know, like, like my camera's from 1984. I was born in 1983. So to me, that looks more real. When there was the switch made to high definition, I remember feeling like this is so ugly. Like, I don't want to see all these details of people. I still feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, the first time I started seeing myself on video is, you know, when I started teaching and we record all the classes and my writers can review the tapes and the, and the lectures that I remember, you know, putting them up and like for the first time, how different I looked, it seemed from like inside my head when I'm teaching versus when other people are, and just like, I got very obsessive about little things like the way I hold my hands, uh-huh. you know, yeah. and, and I mean, for me, it's been harder because like I got very self-critical mm-hmm. when I when I did that. And and I think that there's this fear of, oh, I don't want to see what I really look like. or I don't want to see what I really sound like. And so I find it like super interesting and cool that you were able to like do that and be like, oh, OK, like and not shy away from there, looking at it. Yeah, there was a period of having some problems with that. I I had uh, bleached blonde hair at the time and some piercings in my face. And when I saw the footage initially, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I look like I'm trying to be somebody I'm not. Mm. And I went and actually shaved my head and took out all the piercings and was just trying to find some fundamental truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, There's a movie called... Um, David Holtzman's diary. I don't know if you've seen it. I saw it at the time. I think it's from the sixties, but it's a guy who turns the camera onto himself. And he says, it's a quote by like Godard or Truffaut. Um, Truth is 24 frames a second. And he's just trying to film his life and, and understand something. Uh, yeah. And why don't we get for the audience too to, to give about your artist statement, that might be good to give a little more specifics about, sure. cause I, I read that and I was like, Oh, it really, it made more sense for me at least as a listener to uh, be able to understand some specific things that you were doing and yeah. imagery. Yeah. Um, so I wrote this artist statement. It's on my website. Um, I make experimental allegorical video art pieces in which I also perform in these films. I invent imaginary worlds that are ethereal and disturbing combining anarchistic themes and feminine sensuality, sometimes without dialogue My visual language is constructed from carefully studied symbols like butterflies, fruit, flowers, eggs, and personal objects, which endure a process of destruction and resurrection. These objects get destroyed by fire, knives, hammers, and the tearing of their specific flesh, nails, forks, teeth, drowning, mutilated to later find themselves resurrected as a changed thing or remain in fragments. Reflecting on experiences of a traumatized childhood, concepts of God, the need to return to nature, loss of love and love, I invite the viewer into my private world of magical realism. This is a world where I am simultaneously the story and the storyteller, simultaneously humorous and very authentic. Influenced by Andy Warhol, Cindy Sherman, and the Riot Girl music movement and auteur cinema, I found my personal aesthetic through sophisticated treatment of shooting on a VHS camera in my bedroom alone. In my earliest video art, The Sky Project, my character Sky is often dressed up without any intention of leaving her room. And I've always had a fascination with performance as a medium, specifically when a live audience is not present, and what it means to perform for oneself. 
I also enjoy treating each frame as a moving painting, instilling intimacy and specificity into each composition. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. It's really interesting how, um, you know, we, when we talk about the dreamlike theory, all the disturbing aspects of it and how, like, you know, I think we're all kind of in this zombie-like trance of, like, just going, to all the, going about our life and all that. And when we confront the dreamlike underlying currents of, like, what's, you know, what, what dreams reveal, then there's something that's a distressing element, I think, at least in my experience. And what, what you're saying is that then we're realizing, oh, there's all these, we're really the reality of, like, the, the emerging, the emergence and disillusionment of all things, you know, things come and go and mm-hmm. they, they, they create it and then they're destroyed and, and this kind of stuff. So, and, and what way, like, do you take literal dreams or do you have like a dream journal or do you also, do you, do you remember your dreams a lot? Or? I don't. I don't no, remember no. my dreams at all. No. Okay. Yeah. yeah I don't remember like yeah. a single one. Wow. Well, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But I think sometimes I justify that in my head as like my life is so dreamlike. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But I I do combine um something that's very beautiful with and and destroy that beautiful thing mm. a lot. There's one video I did where I. I actually eat live butterflies. Oh, wow. and this one is is uh, very disturbing for people because I get, I mean it's seven minutes long and I'm taking butterflies by their wing. It starts out very slow where the butterflies are crawling on my face and I'm kind of like considering them and like licking them and touching them and then I start eating them and like tearing off their wings and like crunching through their bodies and and people are just so horrified when they see it and and like. Why did, you know, why would you do that to innocent butterflies? Um, which is, you know, other people have brought up to me, they wouldn't flinch at eating a hamburger, you know, yeah. but like you're eating butterflies and people are really moved by this because there's this like association of beauty. You know, I think that's something that, you know, I grew up hunting, um, bow hunting. And so it was very shocking to me when I came to New York City and people would get very upset but like still be eating meat. And I'm like, if you're not willing to look that animal in the eye and chase it down and give it a fair chance and like cut it open and gut it, I'm just like, how, you know, to me that felt very contradicting in the world. And also like, how do they know that they're innocent butterflies? They don't know those butterflies. (laughs) They don't know what those butterflies have done. For all we know, those could have been like, (laughs) make America great again, butterflies. (laughs) And you know, they don't know. Something I think about with like the, killing of butterflies is just that um i can do it but not necessarily believe in it yeah. or just because i'm doing yeah. it doesn't mean i condone it it doesn't mean that i have a stance on it and i think this is like too complicated for people to mm-hmm. understand sometimes but mm. yeah i mean i think people if most people are being honest they we all do things on a daily basis that we don't agree with like that are not like what our conscious morality is and the automatic choices that our bodies make are oftentimes in conflict with each other. And there's like this chosen delusion to not pay attention to it because I mean, I think if you do like you do get preoccupied with your own morality and then you can just sit in paralysis and just think all day. But I do think that it's something where we should be aware that, you know, we are all liars. Like there's no person who tells the truth all the time. There's no one whose actions are in line with their conscious morality. And even if you were to push that morality as far as it possibly could, eventually it will break because I've never heard of a, a, 
uh, philosophy or morality that you could, if you pushed it far enough into various circumstances, wouldn't just collapse in on itself. So. Yeah. It's interesting because Erica actually answered in her pre-interview questions that she's someone who believes in never telling a lie. So I'm <laughs> yeah, curious. I to, yeah. I was thinking about that. She, put, she specifically was like, I will never tell a lie. And I was like, I was like, interesting, interesting. So well, I've definitely lied before. Yeah. And I think I've lied quite a bit. Uh, um, so you don't, we can't play chew the dare with you and expect uh, a <laughs> like complete, complete Ooh. answer. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do truth truth today. <laughs> so tell well, us a little more about that. Yeah. Well, I, I, grew up with like a really strict uh religious mom and so there were all these rules and I couldn't I wasn't allowed to do anything and I was getting grounded all the time so I found like if I just lied I could do whatever I wanted so I I lied all the time and I was I mean I was conscious of it it wasn't like uh pathological lying I made a decision every time like well you know I want to go out with this guy but my mom is going to say no so I'll just say I'm staying the night with my friend Amber you know whatever it is um, so that I could do this and then at some point I think maybe when I turned 30 I realized when I tell a lie it's really hurting myself like mm-hmm. it could be the smallest lie it could be um, you know oh I'm sorry I can't uh, hang out I'm sick people tell that lie all the time that's really yeah. common or they just like maybe like tweak the truth a little, give a distorted thing because they don't want to hurt someone's feelings. But what that's actually doing is one, it's compromising your integrity, but it's also deeper than that because in that process, you're, you're changing your truth and that is altering the other person's perception of you. And so you're presenting yourself (coughs) as a different person or that, you know, instead of saying, you know what, I just don't want to. And then that friend has to decide, do I want to be friends with Erica? She doesn't want to go to this thing. You know, that friendship would be based more in honesty and who I truly am. Mm -hmm. And I want to have relationships with people that are like, they're either there and they're real or they're just not. And it's to be honest is actually a more selfish choice because I'm not thinking about like, other people's feelings as much as I just want to live an honest life. I want to have authentic interactions with people. No, I totally agree. Cause uh, as much, I do believe that all people lie that no matter how hard you try. And cause I was like, just because it's inevitable doesn't mean you shouldn't try. You know, I, I do, you know, I, I, I aim to be honest as, you know, as much as I possibly can without it, you know, uh, which means oftentimes I will say nothing. I'm definitely someone where it's like I will opt for silence at times. But even with my conscious attempts, I still know that even just in passing or on the train, like little things which just feel like, you know, common courtesies for the space. And I think living in New York City where, you know, we're not rude, but we all kind of serve the the master god dragon of the functionality of the city. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, but yes, I absolutely think that, you know, it is best for oneself and for one's identity and for one's ability to love their themselves to aim for honesty all the time. But I think it's okay with, if you're not hitting a hundred percent, you know, yeah. <laughs> like you'll get further yeah. if you aim for a hundred percent, but just know that I'm not sure there is anyone who's gotten to a hundred percent, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, we should be mentally in that framework where we're like, oh, you know, we're aiming to always be transparent and honest. 
But of course, when the, the, you know, it's every moment, you know, it's hard to be honest every moment because we're not really asked, we're not demanded of to be revealing all these things. But when the moment comes, we have to make a decision. Okay. What's the, what's, you know, synthesis, honesty, complete honesty, and what is real? And, you know, when you think about when we ask a question about um, something, you know, that, that, you know, to what extent do we want to be brutally honest? And to what extent do we want to be honest without, Kind of revealing too much, you know, like and what you in our language, yeah. how we reveal it is like to what extent do we want to go on and on, and to what extent do we want to just quickly answer the question and all these kinds right. of things? Yeah, all these kind of. Synthesis. I think we can yeah. be pretty close to a hundred percent honest. Um, and if someone asks you something or pushes something that you don't want to say, you can yeah. just honestly say like, "This makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about it," or like, "I have per- yeah. personal reasons for why." I might not want to elaborate. Exactly, exactly. Or my yeah. favorite, which is you make this face and then go, I want to go to the bathroom right now. And then you walk away and no one questions you when you say that. And it can be true because I can want to go to a bathroom for various reasons, even if that's just because I don't want to be here. It's always yeah. a it's always a good way to get out of an awkward uh, social situation and yeah. just ask where the bathroom is. So let's talk a little bit about like the influencing uh, philosophies and such that... Uh, had an impact on you over the course of your life and um, and how you responded to them or what specific work. I think the question was about like uh, philosophies as well as any specific works that may have impacted your aesthetic and, and, and artist, artistic way. I guess um, so many things. <laughs> yeah. So many philosophies. And I mean, I'm a pretty philosophical. I was always a pretty philosophical kid, too. Yeah. Um. And questioning things, it just depends at what point. I know in one of the like preliminary questions, yeah. I was talking about um, being in college and discovering existentialism, yeah. and kind of like going through this departure or away from um, the religion that I'd been brought up in, mm. um, and then probably around that time, discovering just feminist literature and art, and that was very influential um and even music that came out of that i remember i read a book uh a feminist book that was like why don't you for just a year um only read books and um and absorb art by women Mm. and so i kind of took that on like i want to try that um and the 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 aesthetic is different you know and my aesthetic is very feminine so i think that had a had an influence on me for sure. Yeah, it's interesting about um, kind of coming in and out of religion because it's like, especially God specifically, like whether or not, you know, for a long time, you know, I was also kind of a, somewhat of a believer in God and then uh, at least growing up I was. And then uh, kind of, you know, we were following uh, this guru, Sathisai Baba, who purported or as believers at least purported himself to be like an incarnation of the divine. And then, then I kind of fell away from God because I was like, because because I I attached too closely to that particular religious mm. tradition, you know that particular thing, and then I, then slowly slowly I'm becoming like kind of weaving my way in and out of the God narrative and the relationship with divine and relationship with I kind of more broadly define it as the nature ultimate reality or the nature of like you know um, being and trying to and not thinking of it in terms of like I think I think there's a lot of even people who are believers in God kind of reject the narrative that there's like a a, a larger being or or a supreme being that is up in the sky like a big cosmic, uh, you know, Santa Claus kind of a thing <laughs> who just kind of like, you know, judges or something. I, have the, I think the Renaissance, you know, depiction of God maybe, 
damaged perhaps uh, a lot of people's perceptions of what God, you know, what God represents. It maybe mm-hmm. had some damaging aspects. I don't know. What do you guys think? I uh, think if there is a supreme being that created us, yeah. I think we were like a reality TV show that <laughs> she created and then like left the room and just like yeah. forgot about us. And, <laughs> yeah. And we're just like going on without our audience of one. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I have a complicated relationship with religion due to intense yeah religious upbringing as well um you know i was raised in a a strict mormon household uh and you know i don't know there's actually not a time that i remember believing in god like i kind of remember being a little kid and going to church and being like no like not angry about it not upset but just like this doesn't seem right because i watched the way that people would to believe in something but then contradict it so much and i immediately like felt the contradictions because as a kid who really really wanted to be a little boy when you know growing up and to have a church that was very much like you need to be in a dress you can't have sexuality you can't hold a position in this Mm. church i just knew in my like heart in my bones i was just like i was like this is man-made and even in their eyes and they say you know man is fallible and i was like yeah. i was like this is a house built on really shaky ground yeah and i appreciate the fact that it gives people peace to believe that there is something that is watching over them and that there's a certain way to live their life but i just knew at a very young age that i was like i'm going to i know that i need to choose the meaning for my own life and when i stumbled into to buddhist Buddhist existentialism is sort of how I first found that um, it just, you know, just felt right. I mean, it's painful. It's painful because like every, you know, about every six months to three years, you know, I have another existential crisis and I realized I was like, nothing means anything. It's only because I give it value and I choose to. I could just choose to have value in, you know, drugs and alcohol and, (laughs) you know, but yeah. um, and then also the burden is it's kind of heavy. I think Sartre also wrote about this about the, yeah. the burden of freedom and how uh, we're then you know when we give up the the pacifier of God or the idea that someone else is me giving meaning, then when we take resp- full responsibility, and I think many God believers do do this as well, but you know full responsibility of our own lives and our own decisions and our own choices, then all of a sudden we're like, all right, now I have to be I'm the one in the pilot seat, and I have to be kind of responsible yeah. and educated and responsible and 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 powerful about that and with that great responsibility comes the was it was great, great power, power great power comes, comes great responsibility. I, let's yeah. reframe that as with great perspective, great perspective. comes great responsibility. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. So also you were talking a little bit about how uh, that make, and talking about how it feel makes people connected and such and and how does that translate into your art? How does that uh, how does that feeling or enlightenment experience thing you used? Oh yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about like, if you can expand a little bit on that how. Enlightenment experiences. Yeah, enlightenment experiences. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> well, let's see. Uh, I was working on my first feature film, uh, called Satori, actually. Um, and I was starting to research more about spirituality and Zen Buddhism, <sighs> and um, doing yoga. I mean, I'd done yoga always, but this was more as like a moving meditation, mm. and. Coming coming into these ideas, I I I think 
at the end of a yoga class, I laid down in Shavasana and had um, a pretty serious God experience where I felt and knew without words, like even saying it cheapens it, but, but um, I felt that I was God and that everyone in the room was God and there was like an eternal oneness. Um, and again, like the words make it sound like it is able to even be spoken in words and what I was experiencing. It's like, I might've might as well have been floating above the room or floating off the floor. And, um, and then later or maybe before, you know, even having psychedelic experiences, I think provide a similar kind of knowing. Um, but that, that definitely influenced Satori and the themes there. Um, in, in that movie Satori. So I made this movie on VHS, uh, on VHS in my apartment and I was the only performer, the only actor in it. And I did all the shooting and art directing and it took two years to make. I was just like writing this script and shooting every day and, um, building sets and my world was like covered in flowers and eggs and, um, (laughs) it was very magical, but, a lot of those, yeah, a lot of those ideas about God got funneled into that movie. Interesting, interesting. And the Satori being like the the sudden, I think it's a sudden, right? It's a it's a sudden moment. Enlightenment, uh, yeah. Sudden enlightenment, yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to like you know the the kind of the the, the schools of thought on like having it being sudden or brief or, or having it sudden as opposed to like gradual. I understand, you know, as opposed to like like you, a lot of people I talk to Buddhists, whatever they're like, and I'm like, how do you? Uh, reduce self-grasping or how do you like reduce our, our ignorance or how do you do that? They're like, oh, gradually, little by little. And I'm like, I just think to myself, like, how do you do that little by little? Like, you know, if either you're doing it or not doing it, you know, I just right. feel like, like you can't do it little by little. You know, it's got to be like, for me, at least in my experience, there's like breaks where you're like, all right, now I've realized something. Or I've come to some realization. It's like a sudden drop cool. of altitude. And then, and then you're maintaining at that altitude for a little while, but then, and then you have another sudden drop in altitude. I don't see it as gradual in the sense of like every day you're whittling away. I mean, I just feel like that's a bunch of nonsense. I don't know. Well, well no, I mean, I neurologically, like if you, cause first you have to like have the experience first yeah. and then you have to practice it. Practice it. So yeah. like the first time you are learning to do something, like even when I started like practicing bravery, like, and I actively yeah. spent a year of my, I quit my job. I gave up my apartment because I was like, any fear I have, I'm going to, I'm going to practice bravery, the, the act of taking action in spite of fear. And I had a lot of anxieties and fears. And so this idea that first, when you're practicing something like it's, it's in it, the prefrontal cortex is what's really active because you can only hold four things in your conscious mind at once. And so it has to be in your conscious mind. It has to be taking up that space. And then if you practice that enough, it, that moves back to to the part of your brain that's sort of people think of as like having muscle memory. Like, so it becomes a habit. It becomes something that you can do unconsciously. And so I understand like there can be that first sudden like, oof, I finally got this in the conscious brain. Mm. And then there's the gradual, the practicing of it yeah. until it becomes such a regular part of your day, the way that you don't really even realize that putting on clothes yeah. at one point in time you struggled to have to put on clothes before you left the house. Like your parents had to be like, oh, 
you cannot take, you can't go out of the house with no pants, you know, <laughs> like just the struggle to shower, to brush your teeth. These things that we don't even realize are active choices because we've practiced them so much, <clears throat> excuse me, that they become part of our process. And I think that, you know, compassion, uh, truth, you know, vulnerability, all these things that are make for great art are things that, you know, I hate when people say you can't like train to be an artist. And I'm like, you absolutely can practice vulnerability, compassion, bravery, oh, yeah. which are yeah, to me totally what am. makes yeah. strong artists is yeah. the ability to look at and speak your internal truth with compassion and bravery and the, you know, and, and empathy. Um, so I understand that it's both sudden, but then also yeah. gradual Totally Depending totally. on what part of, you know, the, if it's the initial, the first time getting it, you know, and then moving into it, becoming something that is regular and, and easier for you to do. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. Even an example, it's like when you're first learning something, it's, it's you know, take patience, you have to go gradually, learn it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I guess you, you can go into a rhythm, but then once you're in the rhythm, you're kind of like, then if you had to relearn something or if, if you made some, if there's a fundamental flaw in your thinking in the beginning, then kind of the realization that, okay, I have to now unbreak all those habits that have become uh, um, ingrained in me. Then then you have to kind of go through a sudden process of realization that, you know, that this is how I have to do it or something. I don't know. But, um, yeah, yeah. So what else coming for you, Arka, as far as, like, um, you were talking a little bit about um, uh, some of the themes about personal is political and how um, every choice we're making, like, it's kind of brings into themes of, of uh, even things that are off the record or like have a major impact and such. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think that relates to the idea of radical honesty that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, it's just that these can be private choices, but they're still our choices. And, and in that sense, every act is political. Mm. Yeah. You know, I don't think most people realize how many choices that they actually make in a day. And that if you, are present with yourself you you know that you can actually consciously think about every single choice and and make that i think most yeah. like most of the people a lot of people i know you know they they complain about their life or like what's doing oh i'm not going to the gym i'm not doing this i'm not doing the things that i want to do and you know because it's easy to get into that unconscious habit monkey mind yeah but um, you know, and I think especially with filmmaking, because, you know, I'm like with when we're, you're writing a film, I'm just like, all it is, is a character making a crap ton of choices and the consequences of those choices. Like that is really all a traditional narrative film is, is you mm -hmm. have a character and it's like they make a choice. So like, oh, I'm going to go to work, you know, and then they get hit by a car and then it's just choice, consequence, choice, consequence. And it's the same thing for our lives, which is just like if you're not enjoying the consequences of your life, then Spend it if you can spend an entire day just being like, I want to consciously make as many of the choices of what's happening today as possible. And you will be overwhelmed and exhausted at the end of that day. But you will realize that like you how many of your, your choices are on automatic pilot, but that if you bring your awareness to that moment, you can simply just be like, oh, like I was about to, you know, grab this hot dog and eat it. You know, mm. is yeah. that the choice I want to make right now? Is this yeah. going to help me? to be the person, the best version of myself that I want to be. And if the answer is no, then you can choose something else. Yeah. Well, and how far reaching those choices go, yeah. like mm -hmm. even the sense of every dollar is a vote, mm. you know? Yep. So like all the choices of the things you purchase are 
directly impacting in a sense like your political views you know are you buying things in plastic are you whatever it it might Mm be yeah yeah and like yes and where you buy those things Mm. you know right because that's where i i find that a lot of my contradictions stem from uh the con like just amazon i was just gonna say i mean amazon (laughs) is is a really tough one and i think Mm -hmm. um we should all try to use amazon a little bit less and start there you know and and even if it means like shopping at the stores locally and maybe they're not the best stores but just like undoing that as the norm you know it's very destructive yeah and and having a buddy system with it i feel like when i try to do that on my own i'm like but the moment i'm like i call up a friend and i'm like hey on saturday they want to do like a no no amazon day where we're like for whatever you were going to buy for a whole week, we just save it up, we make a list, and then we just do a marathon shopping day across New York City trying to find, like, the best little mom and pop shops. And, like, that kind of makes it feel a bit more fun because I do understand that we have been entering into a comfort culture that has accelerated much quicker than people are paying attention to in the past, like, five or six years. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it because, like, when I first started teaching screenwriting versus now, the 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 amount of times I hear, oh, but yes, wouldn't it just be easier to do blank? And I'm noticing that like more and more the the writers that come in have an entitlement of comfort that I did mm-hmm. not see when I first started totally. teaching where, where I'm just like, no, there's not an app for that and nor should there be. <sighs> and I have to have a little bit of a, you know, I have to have a, a little bit of a harsher moment in some of my classes saying like, if you want to be comfortable and if you want things to be easy the last thing you should be looking to do is to be an artist and especially an artist that gets paid in the film industry i'm like if you if if you don't want if you don't enjoy it's like being like i want to be a climber but i don't want to break a sweat and i'm like well you're never going to get up mount everest if you're not willing to be really freaking cold and uncomfortable and sleep deprived and do it in spite of those things and you know to me that's what, you know, art is, you know, emotional mountain climbing. And mm. if that is not of interest to you, if you want to be safe emotionally, if you want to stay refusing to look at the repressed parts of yourself, you should probably find something else to do. There's other important things in this world that we need. We need lawyers and we need, well, I don't know. Yeah. We need doctors and uh-huh. we need, you know, people where... It is our job for our culture to pull the repression out of ourselves and out of our society and work through it for years so that our society can consume it in 90 minutes and have that cathartic experience. Like, that is what we do. I don't like cooking. I don't want to go out and buy stuff. I pay other people so I can sit down and in 45 minutes have a deliciously cooked meal. That's what a chef does. If you don't like cooking, don't become a chef. Right. And I'm like, as artists, I'm like, that's what I do. I spend I'll spend 10 years working through an issue that is repressed inside of myself and my culture. And then I will serve it to you so that you can consume it in an afternoon. And that is my job. That is my calling. And it frustrates me sometimes when people come in and they're like, oh, I just want the hack. You know, I want the Tim Ferriss version of art. And I'm like, you're you've come to the wrong workshop. Yeah. Well, and what's the aftermath of that? Yeah, you know, because like you're saying, when we're talking about Amazon, we're 
what, six years into this or how, however long and like, what is the future of us as a society given this behavior is just an entitlement, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what is the future of that entitlement going to look well, like? Yeah. Like, so kids that are raised, you know, I look at my friends, kids that are like maybe six. And so having that, never realizing that you know i mean i even think that there's you know obviously every generation there's a little bit more of an entitlement in regards to the accessibility of things Mm -hmm. i remember my father i was like i was like oh these kids these days you know who have like the internet when i was in high school you know the internet was like nothing and my dad was like screw you let me tell you about typewriters um and i'm like oh yeah and so it scares me and i know that it happens every generation but and maybe I'm being foolish, but like it really scares me the idea that there there are kids right now that think, oh, you, I just put this button and it magically appears. And what does that mean, you know, for the art world or for, you know, just in 15 years, where are we going to be? I'm just scared we're going to end up like in Wally. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. That that movie where like yeah. we're all just yeah. like sitting around with like the machines attached to us. Just like I think it's devastating. Yeah. I mean, I'm technology and the internet like if it were up to me to me um it would just all be shut off and i would love i would love to live in a world with no internet and like the world existed before the internet like the 60s happened people got together and people made art they made great art like they we could even arguably better art than there is being made today on a mass scale like the literature Mm -hmm. everything you know the cinema and there was no internet and somehow people got together and there were movements. And so all the, all the, you know, justification of the internet that, that people give like, but how would we do this? Or how would we promote that? How would we get together? It's like, but the sixties happened yeah. and there was no internet. We don't need the internet. Like everyone's addicted to it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a mass control device, you know, and we're being fed advertisements. It's not fun anymore. There's no sense of mystery to the internet. Um, yeah. And I would love to live in a world without it. And I would love to be present again. And I think, yeah. you know, we would all be better off if we were bored. And the art that comes from being bored and being lonely, you mm-hmm. sit and you think about it and you have to like grow yourself and internalize. And that's lost with the internet. I was having the image of like, you know how Thanos, he slaps the Infinity Gauntlet and half the universe gets uh, eliminated. So now with Erica, the Infinity Gauntlet, she snaps her fingers and the internet disappears. And the Avengers have to time travel back to figure out how do we yeah. get back the internet? Erica has destroyed the internet. No, I, listen, I, I'm all for it too. Like, I think there is great, thing, there's great things about the internet and the beginning of the internet and the promises but I think especially if you're if you're someone who wants to make art and if you're someone who wants to understand yourself more. The thing is that most people go to the Internet the, the moment that they go to the Internet when they don't really actually need to and you don't need to like write an email, you know, you're not doing work stuff. But the way yeah. that we addictively just look down at our phone when there's a moment is that you're feeling something that is a little bit uncomfortable yeah. and you're immediately going to a distraction. And so before, like, we couldn't go to a distraction so quickly, and it forced us to actually sit with the uncomfortableness of the feeling that arose or the thought that arose. And to make great art, you know, is like when those things come up, To that's the unconscious, like, sending you little gifts, even if they're uncomfortable. I mean, like, hey, let's fall down this rabbit hole. 
And if every time the unconscious invites you down the rabbit hole, you go, that looks uncomfortable or strange or scary. Let me just numb myself by looking at Instagram. You are doing the opposite. Like it's, it's, you lose the human experience. Yeah. yeah. Actually. And it's just, and like that's something that I, you know, in the meditative writing class, like I, I tell people, I'm like, you know, it's almost like your conscious mind is like, this like awesome woman just sitting in a throne and she's looking out the eyes and she's like, that's the outside world. But behind her is this giant movie screen that the unconscious is throwing up images and memories and fantasies. And that you can, you can become aware of that woman in the throne and just go and look and like, Oh look, something outside. Oh, I just saw a moose on the road. And then if you turn around and look behind you, you can see all of the things your unconscious is giving you in relation to mooses, which is like, Every time you've seen one, northern exposure, um, chocolate mousse, like any associations coming up from the unconscious. And that, you know, art is just being aware that your conscious brain is in between the external world and your unconscious and being able to then use all of that to bring something to life in the external world that didn't exist beforehand. But if you are distracting yourself every time those things pop up, you're not going to create anything. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of creating things, so why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, you're, you've got a second feature film coming out. That's uh, right? a so perfect thing to mention, yeah. actually, yeah. because it's it's about this. Um, <laughs> it's it's my fantasy in a way, um, yeah. where the, the main character who's played by me um, embarks on a journey to essentially shut off the internet. Oh, um, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so it, it uh, begins, it's called The Special People. And it begins yeah. in a forest and I've built these like pink trees out of paper mache, but there's um, all of these, the citizens of the forest and they're um, staring into these iridescent cubes of nothing. They're clear, empty cubes and they can't stop staring no matter what you do um, that you can shake them and they, they won't stop staring. But three people in the forest managed to break the the trance of looking into the cube and they are experiencing sensuality together and eating fruit and um, being very deeply philosophical. And then at some point question, is this enough just for the three of us to essentially be the only people in the world who are conscious? And they decide, no, we need to try to, you know, embark on a journey to destroy the master cube and, and save and bring the people of the forest back to consciousness. Um, Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Great, great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's um, really fun. Yeah, yeah. And then also, um, you're acting in a play. Tell us a little bit about that. And, and oh, how, this is the, so cool. Um, yeah. This is a play. It's called The Cosmic Thrust, uh, and it's written and directed by Alex Aguirre. Um, and it's essentially a bunch of friends. <laughs> we get together twice a week and rehearse is what it feels like. It just feels like laughing and um, playing all the time. But we, uh, I play a micro God and um, I'm there with another micro God and we have created lush land. And then some humans come through a portal into lush land. And the longer they're there, the longer they, or they, they start to trip out and have, have a psychedelic experience in lush land. And so um, everyone is a different sort of archetype and plays out that world. I don't know. 
Oh, awesome. Cool. It's really fun. And is the play, playing now or? Is uh, it'll be in November. Yeah. yeah. November, okay. um, uh, where can people find out more about that? Um, or what, what's the. Uh, I, I believe it. I could say November 22nd and 23rd at Patchworks. Uh-huh. And then um, November 8th and 9th at Vital Joint. Oh, cool. In Brooklyn. Great, great. Thank you. Awesome. Um, so let's see what other stuff do we have here. <laughs> I'm trying to see what other, uh, uh, you had some really great things about, um, you know, the, uh, the different movements and such that influence you and the, um, uh, to, w- what you want people ultimately to, uh, get out of your art when they, when they look at it. Cause you know, on, on some level, you know, what, what I'm hearing is that it's about, you know, you as an artist, you're kind of looking into yourself and looking into, um, what's going on internally, and I think as artists, we're all doing that. But like, what is it? What is it that you hope that people, when they see your journey, what'll spark in them? You know, what'll what'll um? I think yeah. Um, of course, I hope everyone follows their their own dreams. Um, but I, when they're looking at my work, I I want more than anything. I think this is what I want more than anything. I feel so desperate in my wanting of this, but it's just that they would really look and like really be there and, and be completely present and have a full bodied experience with it, you know, not have a phone that they're looking at, not have other windows open. Mm. Um, maybe not even view the videos on their computer, maybe project them and just, and just be there. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting, like the, um, you know, having the experience and, and and following through with it, and having the viewer participate fully. I think it's important to like remind people because I think that that they, um, we also we're talking about the communities of culture, cultural communities and such, and like how we're all getting kind of like, you know, I guess slack in our in our disciplines. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's ultimately what uh, we're going for. But let me just let me do a couple of quick announcements and then uh, we can go back to the conversation because we do have a little bit of time. Um, so this is the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Or you can go to radiofooking.org slash truth to power and uh, sponsor this particular show. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible. Uh, you can also donate to Radio for Brooklyn by shopping through. And I know a lot of people we've been downing on Amazon, but uh, <laughs> if you want to, if you if you if you're a student of the beast, let's go to Amazon Smile. Amazon Charity Initiative, where you can shop and support a nonprofit of your choice at the same time. It'll cost you nothing. It goes to radiofrooklyn.org slash smile to have uh, RFB as your donee and start shopping. Um, general general things about uh, you know how you're listening to it. If you prefer to listen on your iPhone or Android, go to the respective uh, Play Stores and download the apps. Um Let's see what else we got here. Uh, after more than a year of dreaming, researching, experimenting, late night conference calls, and early Saturday morning meetings, the Me team is happy and proud to present to you the Me bottle. This double ins- insulated, reusable stainless steel bottle 
disinfects water in 60 seconds, 60 second cycle, utilizing UVC LED technology and is 99.99 effective against E. coli. A single charge of our micro USB lasts 30 days and a bright LED display lets you know when water is ready to drink. Join us in bringing clean water to all. Raise your bottle and drink to you and me. Find out more at mebottle.com. Um, let's see. Ready for Brooklyn is having a fall music festival uh, on 10-27 at 5 p.m. Ready for Brooklyn is excited to present its first ever fall music festival on October 27th. Come enjoy seven hours of live music, food, and an array of local vendors at East Williamsburg venue. Sunnyvale, which is located at 1031 Grand Street. Attendees will enjoy performances from Bad Citizen, ZR King, Terminal Fury, King Tyrant, King Tyrant, Tyrant, Holy Vulture, and King to Burn. We love our listeners to join us in the Norgo Festival. Find out more information at RCP at RadioBooking.org slash FallFest. Uh, I believe that's all my announcements. Um, I know that uh, Erica had like a song that she felt was good to play. Uh, well, I think that song is like, um, uh, let's see how long that song is. Um, seven minutes. Seven minutes, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll try a little bit more. Tell us a little bit about uh, uh, the song and, 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 and the music in general, how it influences you. Um, well, this song um, is called Blood Run Free. I actually made the music video for this, oh, yeah? oh, for cool. this band. Yeah. Um, and I, I just felt really close, close to the song after spending so much time with it. Um, I spent three months like studying the lyrics and thinking about them and, and conceptualizing the video and, you know, maybe part of my closeness, um, with it is, is doing what we're talking about is being so present with it. Um, but also the songwriter, I feel I feel like the lyrics are very poetic. Cool, cool. And what uh, now in your in your uh, experimental art or in your art, you tend to do it silently, or do you do do you do? Because uh, I was watching a few of them, and most of them are silent. But do you they also incorporate silent. some music, or um, do you sometimes, sometimes I do music videos like this music one videos, for the yeah. Johns. Um, yeah. But mostly, in the past, I've done a lot of silent just video art pieces. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. Satori is silent. There's yeah. subtitles. So oh, yeah. in Satori's, uh, Satori, the main character is having conversations with um, other inanimate objects, but they're like psychically communicating. And so they're subtitled. And so is Satori. Um, but in this new film that I'm making, I'm, I'm playing with sound more. Oh, oh. yeah. All right. Um, so any last, uh, last thoughts or last comments, uh, well, I think oh, yeah. uh, some wonderful takeaways from today would be uh, maybe make a goal. If if the idea of going an entire weekend without your phone or computer is intimidating, then start with a day. And if a day is intimidating, start with an afternoon. And if an afternoon is intimidating, <laughs> start with an hour. One of the biggest <laughs> things for goal setting is it should feel easy to do. So even just starting with, hey, I'm going to set an alarm for 30 minutes and then I can go off and... I'm not going to look at a screen and, you know, just, you know, hula hoop in your living room or dance in a room or stare at a painting mm-hmm. or, you know, talk to a stranger, heaven forbid, but just, you know, start somewhere. Um, and then, yeah, maybe plan a non-Amazon 
shopping trip with some good <laughs> I love friends. That. Yeah. yeah. The anti Amazon, you know, friendship shopping extravaganza. Um, and then, yeah, I definitely would say if, you know, if people wanted to know more about your art or wanted to observe some of your stuff, where should they go, even if it is online? <laughs> um, my website, ericashriner.com um, or maybe my Instagram, um, which is at analog cinema. Oh, thank you. And people can go to vjarnethan.com to find out about my own uh, writing and projects and stuff like that. Um, and also, um, RacheBooking.org says Choose the Power has the, uh, something like, I think we have like 95 episodes or something like that up. Because November 11th will be our 100th episode. 100 so, episodes. 100 episodes on November 11th on 11-11. So uh, definitely check out our previous episodes and, and tune in uh, every Monday at 8 a.m. We rebroadcast right now at Thursdays at 9, although... Uh, you know, keep checking the readyforbrooklyn.org uh, uh, schedule. And if anyone confirm, is yeah. going to, yeah. uh, I will be speaking at the I will be speaking at the Austin Film Festival and the Napa Valley Film Festival, and helping out with the um, a few other local festivals. Um, and if you want to find out more about that or any of my writing workshops, you can visit me at meditativewriting.org or my Instagram, which is at meditative underscore writing. All right, cool, cool. So we'll listen to Blood Run Free by the Johns. Thank you. Lumbered down the street, pushing garbage cans over as it did so, fixing to render you like a flower, cut down to be chibbitting into the love between two people. Like that you're absorbed by my story I regurgitated And then took more of the Georgie Will this love turn rancid? Who's to say? You go to the window It's pressed against my face The sympathetic perceptions Revealed in my work themselves and completely disconnected from the matter at hand, the ancient Feel my use unmixed with a 
Like demons feared as a body bleeds. 